Hi, it's Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius, it's Mark. They're in. Nice. Taking it to the next level. Launching phase two of Gable Media on October 7th. 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 Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. In this episode of the podcast, I have a conversation with Reg Prentice. Reg is the founder at Tonic DM, which is a startup in the AEC world that's been operating for a few years. And right as Reg had started Tonic DM, uh, is when I initially got in contact with him when I was teaching a course in emerging technology at Cal Poly, and he came recommended to me as a guest lecturer. So when I first met him, he had just started Tonic. Uh, previous to Tonic, he had worked at Gary Partners and at Gensler. Reg gave a presentation to my students, and he really got me thinking about where the value in an architect lies. So that's where this whole conversation started, and we are continuing that today. Uh, I wanted to definitely bring up these ideas on the show, and I thought there was nobody better to do that than Reg Prentice. So Reg is originally from New Zealand, where he got a Bachelor of Building Science and a Bachelor of Architecture degree. You may detect a hint of his Kiwi accent. Uh, anyway, Reg is a fantastic guy. I love hanging out and talking with him. I get to see him a few times a year because of what he's doing with Tonic and also at various conferences like Autodesk University, which isn't happening this year, but that's a that's another topic. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Reg. I always enjoy the thought that he puts into some of these ideas, and I think that's what originally captivated me with the presentation that he gave to my students and has provoked a lot of thinking. I hope that you will be equally provoked uh, and that maybe we can start to talk about potential solutions to some of these problems. All right, so here it is. Without further ado, my conversation with Reg Prentice. It's great to talk to you again. Great. Thanks, Evan. Yeah. So when we first met, I had got a recommendation from a professor at Cal Poly about uh, potential lecturers for my class. I think that's when I initially reached out to you over email. And uh, I right. think you were, you were <laughs> like recommended as a... Uh, a BIM, a BIM guy or an IT guy, or I don't know what, what the actual, what your actual title was, but you're from Gensler. But I think by the time I got in, in touch with you, you had started your company Tonic. Does that sound about right? right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think it would be interesting maybe real quick to just tell people where you've come from in the, let's just say, you know, the, the just previous to where you are now with, with Tonic. Yeah, so my background was uh, in architecture. So I have a Bachelor of Architecture degree, but pretty quickly went into the IT CAD management side and worked for Frank Geary for 11 years and then Gensler for nine years. Um, during that time, my interest mostly spent 2D CAD and what you might call 1D information. And really, I started to focus more just on information in the design process and how information flows 
between designers and between design companies. Uh, and that's what led me to start Tonic, which is about project information management, very much focused on information rather than you know, uh, modeling or some specific design process or design activity. So with the, the course that, that I was teaching and that you came in to lecture on, and, and kind of figuring out via email before the class happened that you had started this company and that you guys were doing this with Tonic. Basically, your presentation came from left field to me, right? Because you started talking about the mechanisms of design, what the purpose of it was for, how people document decisions, what kind of a problem is design. And so I found it fascinating. And I think, you know, that was probably when... I was taking a lot of notes. So some of the things that that I thought we could talk about today kind of revolve around that initial presentation because I think that those concepts that you talked about are still something that a lot of people either don't identify as the definition of design, for instance, or what the purpose of documenting decisions are, but also like the way the way in which you've started this company to solve that particular set of problems and how that fits into this larger ecosystem of tools that we use nowadays to do exactly that. I mean, something that we were talking about pre-show is like, now there's like these endless possibilities of where to put your stuff. Right. And it becomes incredibly difficult to manage the information from a, a global perspective of where did we make a decision and I mean, where by like, what tool did we make it in? And then how do we start to pull all that together? And I mean, that's really what a document set of record drawings for a project are, right? Like they're a, they're a documentation right. of a series of decisions. They don't show you every line item or every piece of that paper trail that got there, but but that is what the, the drawings are showing. They are showing the outcome of those decisions. Yeah, and for a specific purpose, another usually to communicate those decisions to the construction team and or the uh, jurisdiction authorities. So they're, they also have a purpose as well as, uh, or an, a target audience as well as a purpose. Yeah. And, and so I think one of the things that I think this starts to get into is what is the purpose or what is the best value of an architect in that process? Because that to me is where things get during your lecture got really interesting was when you start talking about where the value of the architect lies and is it in the drawing of the details of how the contractor is going to put things together, which we all know, you know, a lot of contractors don't look at that stuff, but we still have to provide it to get the agency's approval. So there's lots of like weird overlaps. There's lots of kind of maybe misidentifications of who should be providing what information. And yet here, here we are in this really kind of messy process that we're all kind of stuck in. Can can we take it back? I want to take it back to where you've kind of first started the presentation, which was, well, you said that there's two mechanisms, and I believe they were, to create options and then make decisions. Right. And that, to me, is an incredibly simple statement to say about the purpose of design. Right. So the creating options is what most people think of when they think of design. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's expanding the solution space. So when we take a design problem and we think of design solutions, we can sketch out lots of ideas for what those solutions might be. And that's often 
you know, culminates in a pinup or some kind of expression of all these great design ideas. And that's what gets most mind share because it's the most visual and the most kind of, in quotes, exciting part of the design process. But, you know, only one thing can be built ultimately. Yeah. And so for all the design option making, there has to be a, an equal and opposite process of collapsing all the options down into the thing which will be built. And uh, that's through a series of decisions that have to be made and often hard decisions and hard trade-offs and compromises between different options and different people's uh, input on those options. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the pieces of feedback as an architect that we get quite often, which is how in the world do you synthesize a single solution out of all of the input you get from all of the various, you know, whether it's people, whether it's code, jurisdictional requirements, zoning, uh, larger goals of an entity, future purpose, flexibility. There's so many pieces that that are ambiguously kind of pulling in different directions on the problem. Right. And they're not ever, not I shouldn't say they're not ever, but they're rarely clearly defined and that, to me, is really what makes design such an interesting problem set. And a lot of times, design is just trying to figure out the problem. Right. Yeah. And I, I think the, the word synthesis is one that people probably associate with design and being important, an important part of design. But I think the word decision maker probably isn't a, a word that would commonly be used to describe an architect or designer, mm -hmm. but that's essentially what it is. Mm. There, are, there are skills associated with making options, and those are the skills that we typically associate with design school or being a designer. But I think what's interesting is that half the problem is actually being a decision maker, mm -hmm. and that's a much less talked about skill uh, that designers need to be really good at because it's you know it's it's the basis of synthesis and you know it's it's half of being a designer is cutting down the options and turning them into a single goal yeah. uh, through a series of decisions it, it's also interesting because it's fairly indefinable right that that process and it's probably rarely the same twice and, and so you have to be okay with that, right? which many people are right. not. Many people are not okay with that. I mean, you have to be pretty okay with uncertainty. And and like you talked about how this, there's that equal and opposite pull to collapse everything back down to a single solution. Um, because So you're talking about going from uncertainty to certainty, uh, you hope. Right. And getting the consensus to do that. That's where the designer plays is that they, they play in the realm of uncertainty. And I think uh, you really uh, hit the nail on the head there with that, that designers need to be comfortable with uncertainty. And I think that's what, you know, people who are successful designers will look at themselves and say, yes, you know, I'm, I'm someone who is comfortable with uncertainty, but not everyone is. And maybe very few people actually are comfortable with uncertainty and that's one of the traits i think of, of a designer that makes designers kind of special that's interesting and the the ability to 
not just be comfortable with uncertainty and excited by uncertainty, but have the passion to resolve that uncertainty. So it's, it's not just okay to live with the uncertainty. <laughs> you know, you have to drive to a, to certainty uh, yes. as the outcome. Yeah. And, and I think what's, what's so interesting about like a blank page designer, um, I guess it doesn't matter. Blank page probably is not a, a realistic qualifier here. I mean, basically the definition to me of design is that it is a transformative decision-making process that contends with potential and that is like sky is the limit and there's a different set of rules and we're going to define a new language and we have these constraints that in some cases we make up for ourselves uh, so that mm -hmm. we know if we're following our original party or not. So uh, that whole idea with about contending with potential starts to play into something that you said, I think, during your lecture that I hadn't really heard before was the concept of the, the wicked versus a tamed problem. Right. Yeah. So just to review that for people, this is kind of 1970s, I think, research where problems were, were split into two domains. One is problems that the answer is not known, but the means to get to the answer is known. So making a, a flight to the moon is considered a tamed problem, not <laughs> yeah. because it's easy, because it's obviously incredibly difficult, but but the path to the solution can be figured out through, I guess, rational means like, uh, you know, the study of physics and forces. You can figure out how to get to the moon. But things like uh, poverty are wicked problems because just defining the problem is a big part of the problem. And there's no path to solution that is obvious. It's it's a, it's a trial and error and experience-based uh, solution path. And so putting the construction industry into that mold, the contractor should be working in the tamed problem area because the designer should be giving them the template that they need to build from. And of course, a set of construction drawings is never 100% never correct so or, or complete. So it's not like, the contractor little, literally gets 100% of the blueprint. The contractor still has a lot of figuring out to do, but essentially they get given what they need to build, and their job is to figure out how to build that safely, efficiently, cost-consciously. So they're working in the tamed area. The designer works in the wicked problem area because for the designer, just knowing what the problem that is is a big part of solving the problem. Yeah. So that's when, you know, when people say there's contentiousness or tension between designers and contractors in projects, uh, which I think is, is probably quite common. I think understanding this would actually help both parties, uh, have more empathy towards each other. Right. In that if contractors understood the nature of wicked problems, better they would have more empathy for the design teams what the design team needs to do in order to do their work and for design teams looking at contractors they would perhaps have more empathy for the complexity of the contractor's task which is let's say no less difficult but they are completely different problem-solving domains yeah 
both valuable, right? Right, both necessary and yes. both very complicated and requiring a lot of experience. But other than that, they are just very different types of problem that need to be solved. And and to me, there's like, okay, so this, I think, goes into the larger conversation of in the future profession or practice of architecture, is everybody going to play in their own piece of the puzzle to create the larger whole nicely? Or do we continue to go down this road of low trust between entities, right? Because a lot of it, a lot of that contentiousness, not only is because maybe one party doesn't understand the other one's value, or maybe there's um, overlap that is not well-defined, or, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of ifs there, but there really has been kind of a low trust environment. And it seems to, I mean, it, 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 it even comes up during the education of an architect, right? Like, you know, pro practice class. Here's what the contractor is going to do to screw you over, <laughs> right? And right. and and so it's kind of bred into and and then on the contractor side, it's like, well, look what this stupid architect drew. We don't do it like that. And so it, it happens from very early on. And I'm wondering, you know, sis, like this is a systemic issue to the profession or the indus the AEC industry. And I'm wondering, like. How do we move beyond the current state into this kind of more future, I don't want to say utopian, but but more efficient, better for everybody kind of a, a thing where people do really understand the values of all of the pieces of this puzzle and aren't clashing between them? Because to me, like if you're if you're describing this future state, which to me is, as we can see in so many examples, it's a platform that ties all of these disparate pieces together without any loss of data or redoing of information, if at all possible, then everybody kind of has to understand in definable chunks what their contribution is and and stick to it. That was a big piece of your, your talk was where does the architect yeah. add value? And I think being able to succinctly articulate value is... Uh, going to be a key factor in the future of design because you know any anyone should anyone doing work for money should be able to succinctly articulate the value of their work and if they can't then they're in a reasonably precarious position and i feel like architects and designers have not had the language to succinctly articulate their value. And if I would guess, <laughs> or I, they avoid it. It, I probably should. <laughs> yeah. I would guess if you went to 50 architects and said, what is the value of the service you provide? My guess is you'd probably get a huge diversity of answers. You'd probably get a lot of very long answers uh, and maybe ones which are even kind of circuitous. And so to some extent, I think the AIA should be taking a leadership role in this, in that architects should be able to say in one sentence, this is the value that I provide for my service. And if I was to put words into architects' mouths, it would be, I take the project from uncertainty to certainty. It's, that's very few words, um, but it does sum up the role of the design team. 
And that is focused around decision making. So, uh, so the design team starts with some high level of uncertainty. Typically, the owner may have done quite a bit of research on their own. And so they may come to the design team with even with a, with a brief and sometimes even, you know, rooms that they need, you know, depending on how much pre-work they've done. Sometimes the owner comes to the architect without even a site and only with a vague concept of what they want. So that's almost complete uncertainty. And the design team, through a series of explorations and decisions, has to bring that to near certainty. And that has enormous value, and not many people are good at it. So I feel like, in general, the design industry has a very bright and a very bright future with a lot of work because, you know, whether it's buildings or other things that need to be designed, experiences, et cetera, like there's a lot of design work that needs to be done in the world. And it seems like it's only increasing, you know, as people move even towards designed experiences and all kinds of you yeah. know, design being important in people's lives. Yes. Uh, but we have to be able to articulate that we are professionals in moving an idea from uncertainty to certainty. I, I think one of the, the pushbacks on that that isn't maybe even well stated, but I think it's understood, is that people tend to not buy uncertain things, right? They they don't want to I they don't want to pay for that level of risk that is associated with so much uncertainty. And so they rather buy the outcome than the process. Right. And so that's that's part of the sales process that designers need to perfect, right? Is being able to show an owner that they are in a position of uncertainty and that they are therefore in a position of high risk. And the value of their project depends largely on the process of moving that from high risk, high uncertainty to low risk and low uncertainty or high uncertainty. And that, that designers are uniquely skilled in that transition of, uh, for the project and that when that project is in a position of certainty, then they can deal much better with the, with the build team. The build team will be in a much better position to execute the project. And a lot of the value of the project, I would say most of the value of the project is created during that design process. Yeah. You know, there's nothing less efficient than building very efficiently something which isn't needed. Right. right. Like if you can, even if you build inefficiently, if you're building exactly what's needed, then the loss is small. If you build very efficiently, but you build something which nobody needs or doesn't meet the needs of the owner very well, then you've just... Even though you built efficiently, you've just wasted your money in the broader sense. I, I agree, and I, I feel like, and I've heard this several times uh, over the last few years, is the outcome of that process of going from uncertainty to certainty may not equal a building, right? Right. And and to me, if if an architect <laughs> whose livelihood depends on a building getting built, or at least maybe doing the drawings for the building— were to basically convince an owner based on data, right? This decisions would, mm-hmm. 
the process that you go through led to an outcome that was not a building because they didn't need it. Uh, I mean, and talk, talk about a compelling argument, right. Of providing value. Right. And that, and that's where I think moving the value statement uh, away from whatever people tend to use now to something like we move the project from uncertainty to certainty Mm -hmm. opens up a lot more space for design to work in. Yeah. But the way that design is remunerated does kind of work against that because if, if design is an hourly task, either literally you're getting paid by the hour or you are determining a fee based on the amount of work you think it's going to take, then you are incentivized to increase the number of hours or the amount of work. And for example, suggesting the owner doesn't need a new building kind of get becomes off the table because it just doesn't, the architect's never going to get paid for the incredibly valuable insight that mm-hmm. they were able to come to, um, which brings up alternative methods of being paid for design. Mm-hmm which gets incredibly tricky. And I think there's been quite a bit of discussion and writing on this topic, which is you know awesome, but it's so tricky that I don't think we've really got much closer to solving it. Yeah. And I, so much of it is locked into just the way we've always done it, that a lot of people don't see potential in alternatives there. I think the most dangerous thing maybe is that we have confused our own value for what we charge for mm-hmm. when in fact they're quite different. So sometimes the value of the designer is stated as, you know, we do the drawings, you know, we make the drawings for the contractor to build from, which is very destructive, I think, to the profession because it makes it seem like the value is in the documentation of the decisions when in fact the value is in the decisions themselves regardless of the documentation mm-hmm. i mean documentation is obviously important because we need to communicate those decisions in a way other people understand but but that's not actually the value of the service the value of the service is in the content of the drawings not the drawings themselves yeah that's interesting and, and so you think kind of like at the end of this process is where the value of the architect or the architect should probably, I don't want to say stop, but hand off that process to a, a more qualified documentarian or like, how do, how do you see that process going at that point? I think if you are in the business of design and you articulate your value as we move a project from uncertainty to certainty and our value is in the decisions that we make. If you are thinking about your future, would you want to invest more in the back end of Mm -hmm. documenting those decisions? Or would you want to move your service more to the front end of making bigger and more important and more strategic decisions for the owner And not surprisingly, I would propose that designers who focus on the back end of documentation are at more risk of their service being commoditized Mm -hmm. than designers who focus on the front end of trying to become more of a trusted advisor to the owner Mm -hmm. and be involved in more important and more strategic decisions um, at the beginning of a project. Right. 
And it could be like once designers start doing in quotes construction drawings, which is often the bread and butter, mm-hmm. I think the profession is on tenuous ground mm-hmm. because contractors understand construction better than designers right. uh, almost by definition because they are contractors and so it's it's tenuous territory and so we get into this means and methods argument where we're documenting the design but not the means and methods which i think is actually the right way to go because the architect should be documenting the decisions they make but not the construction specifically which is the perfect means and methods argument but it's when you are drawing a set of construction documents, it's very, very hard to not get into means and methods. And, and the more unique the design is, the harder it is to not, you know, uh, influence the means and methods because the construction and the design are almost one. Yeah. It is interesting in that I think firms kind of operate with a foot in both worlds. In, and what I mean by that is you know, we do design intent. We don't necessarily build for construction, and by build, I mean make make our models, make our drawings for. Obviously, they are that instruction set, but um, there's so many, there's so much risk pulled out of that. You know, never never scale off the drawings. Uh, we can't actually deliver that model. We have to deliver these drawings instead. It's it's a very like we get in our own way. Like I said, there's lots of gray area over who owns what responsibilities in that and then we fight over um the way things were or weren't drawn um because it seems like the the trend in the last decade has definitely been to put more in the drawings not less right which is more of a cover mm-hmm. your ass mentality rather than a um design intent mentality and so to me like this all starts to point toward the the bigger problem that architects really face is what is the future of our profession and who's going to design it? Um, because it starts to get into deliverables, contracts, policy, agencies, mm-hmm. education, licensure, right? Like there's so much that revolves around this. Uh, and because if you think about it, like, like if, if we're painting a picture of a, of a different outcome, you have to go all the way back to the education of the mm-hmm. of the different parties to prepare them for that in the future, right? How do we get to there? Like, talk about a wicked problem, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And the problem with wicked problems is often that there's no consensus on what the problem is or even that there is a problem. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that's the case here. People also come to it with all kinds of uh, biases and self-interest so it does come down to being able to succinctly uh, articulate the value of design yeah and a school especially you'd, you'd think would be able to or would feel compelled to do that and then to build up the education around that value so th- that's where i think decision making is a is a field of study that's been around for, you know, a hundred years, let's say, but you don't hear about it in design school. And I think that's an indicator to me that one, there's a problem and two people don't uh, understand the value of design, at least in the same way that I do, because 
if making decisions is such a big part of design, you would think it would also be a big part of education. And decision making is a whole field of study. So it could be a big part of education. Like if I was to employ a tradesperson to fix something in my house and they arrive with a hammer and just said, and I said, oh, I have problem A. They're like, okay, we'll hit it with a hammer, right? And oh, I have problem B. Okay, we'll hit it with a hammer. You start to go, does this person know what they're doing? Like, are they an expert or are they just a hack showing up with a hammer? And to relate that back to design, a designer should be able to articulate multiple ways to solve the problem of design exploration. Like they might say, you know, if I'm working on a school or a large project or you know this kind of project, I use these tools and I use these methods. And so you would be able to have a discussion with a designer about the benefits and drawbacks of different methods of design because they're an expert in design. Mm -hmm. And you'd also expect to be able to have that conversation about decision making, like when it's a large group or when I have this kind of owner, then I use these decision techniques. Uh, when it's this kind of design problem, you know, I'm going to lay out my decision in this way because you'd expect them to be an expert and therefore have multiple approaches to to making decisions. And I, I don't see that as being the case. Like, I don't see designers being educated in multiple different ways of making decisions, uh, which have pros and cons in different circumstances. Yeah, I think I think if a team is successful in landing a project, that becomes a recipe for future ways to win projects, <laughs> right? It we we right. tend to want to make these things repeatable, which you can't blame people, but it also doesn't mean it's the right approach for every problem. Right, and and that's where just with the tonic product, tonic DM product that we're working on, the future of that will seek to help people engage in decision-making in a more objective, let's say explicit and, and, and thoughtful way. And branching the conversation a little bit, when it comes to the future of design technology, um, particularly artificial intelligence, there's uh, definitely a group of people who are working on the idea that artificial intelligence will be able to make decisions and therefore automate some aspects or potentially all design. My view is, is quite different to that. I see the value of technology in this as uh, being able to present information to the designer to help them make better decisions. And so that could be tools that look at the artifacts of design and help to organize that information around the idea of a series of decisions that have to be made. And in any project, there are, you know, an almost infinite number of decisions that need to be made. You know, designers are decision factories and probably make copious numbers of decisions without even realizing how many decisions they're making. But there are key decisions and there are very difficult decisions in design that need to be made explicit and carefully worked through with the stakeholders uh, and with uh, key decision makers. And being able to perform that at a, you know, better and at a very high level, I think will serve design as well. So my goal for the, for the profession is that Owners would say, Oh, I need 
architects on this job because we have some really difficult decisions to make and we need expert decision makers, expert design decision makers in order to help us through that process and to get the most value out of the money that we're going to spend. To me, that would be a huge win for the design community when, when owners reflect on their use of the design community in that way. Let's take a pause here in the episode and thank our first sponsor of Troxel Podcast, and it is Layer App, the must-have app for Revit users. Are you tired of digging for project photos, files, and field data days if not months after it's captured? That's the power of Layer. Layer takes all of your project-related data, photos, and files and makes them accessible with the click of a button right in Revit. Find out more and start your free 14-day trial at layer.team, that's L-A-Y-E-R dot team slash T-R-X-L. By the way, if you listen to episode 280 of the Entree Architect podcast, also here on Gable Media, you can hear my friend Mark's interview with Zach Soflin, the architect-turned-software developer who created Layer App. Get your free trial at layer.team slash T-R-X-L. That way they know you heard about it here on this show, and that would be much appreciated if you let them know that specific piece of info. So again, that's layer.team slash T-R-X-L. And now back to my conversation with Reg Prentice. I'm thinking now would be a good time to maybe shift the conversation more towards technology and get a little bit more into what you guys are doing with Tonic. But, you know, at the, the technology at large within our profession... I mean, just building off of what you just talked about, about making decisions. To me, it seems now like table stakes for any project team are that those decisions are backed up by data, right? And and mm-hmm. I, I don't mean just like recorded, you recorded how you made the decision or why you made the decision or when you made the decision, but how what what data led to that decision? Um, it seems like that is more and more of a requirement nowadays, not only because of, you know, you know maybe the building code requires an energy model that's going to show how the, the building has to perform once it's built, but because owners in many aspects are now requiring that level of attention to be paid. Like they want to know that your decision was based on data. I mean, have you seen that trend? And And is that the kind of thing that's going into the thinking behind tonic or any other tools that you see out there? Because to me, it seems like if you, let's say you're you're designing a new building and you're not taking environmental data, actual data, not just rules of thumb, not just training that you got in school, but actual location-based geo data on the project as a, as a very rudimentary example like like you're not even going to get past step 1 with many clients today because the sophistication is getting greater and the requirements are going up. I think it's complicated and I would say my trust of the use of data in design is very low. Uh I I think it does it definitely has a place, right? And and I think it should be its its position should be higher. You know, the environmental data is a good example where design teams should be very carefully 
looking at the the climate, getting climate data for the site, and then using that data to inform their decisions. But with any data, it's very the, the story behind the data is very manipulatable, mm. and I think what I've tended to see, unfortunately, is people trying to justify their decision after the fact by finding data that that supports it. Yeah, post justification. Yes, even rendering, I think, is something which falls into this. Like, to me, the value of rendering would be for the designers to inspect the rendering and to get insights from it and say, oh, yeah, it does look a little odd there. I think we should fix that, right? Mm. And so let's say 99 out of 100 renderings should be uh, used by the design team to critique their own work and make their work better, whereas it tends to be the choice, the very careful choice of lighting and angles in order to justify a design, right? Right. And when owners are asking for data-driven or data-influenced design, the outcomes of that don't make me think that it is a truly a genuine process. Mm. Like a lot of firms will do uh, research, in quotes, on things like the most efficient office layouts for generating ideas which would be very useful for companies that are creative, like or that are doing research, or they do hospital layouts that are based on supposedly patient outcomes or the happiness of the work staff, the doctors, healthcare professionals. But when you look at it, you kind of go, it looks to me like someone had an idea they thought was cool, and then they tried to back it up with research. Mm-hmm. For example, if an idea is genuinely a good one and it's supported by research, you'd expect to see that dominate at least that firm's designs because they did the research. They found that this idea was was the best one. But often you'll see that idea occurs in one design, but not in subsequent designs, right? Mm. Because maybe there was a different designer from the same office and they just had a different idea. So I I agree in that designers do need to be more data-driven, but getting designers to that point is more than just a, uh, you know, lip service, right? It's more than research in the name of marketing or research in the name of justifying features that the designers wanted anyway and and i don't think that the the data needs to make boring buildings or needs to make buildings that look a certain way it's uh it's much more abstract than that i think Mm -hmm. Um, like you take environmental analysis of a site and you could come up with a hundred completely different styles of building Mm -hmm. which are driven from that Right. But people tend to fear that it's going to look uh, somehow hippie, right, if it's influenced by environmental data. And it could be that the data does reduce design to a more scientific outcome if designers aren't skilled enough to integrate the data in creative ways Mm -hmm. or if the data is allowed to drive the design exclusively. Right. Rather than being one part of a larger 
set of considerations. So, so that's where I think uh, when a designer starts with a project, which is largely uncertain, their first tasks involve collecting information. And right. that should be environmental information, code information, site information, uh, and starting to build a set of data from which they can start to, uh, to design from. And, and that's how I see it more than, more than the design, the, the data driving the specifics of the design. The data forms one part of the context in, in which, from which the design will emerge. And in terms of decision making, uh, when you start a project in that condition of uncertainty, you're going to start making some pretty big decisions. Mm-hmm. And the way those decisions are made can drive value or it can subvert value. So when you start, you, you definitely have limited information, not just because all information is going to be limited, but because there's limited time to gather the information. And so when you make decisions, you know that later on in the process, more information will emerge that may impact that previous decision. Mm-hmm. So having those decisions documented uh, explicitly, I think, is important. And there's a tool called uh, the Lean A3, which I think is a good tool for this purpose, because what it attempts to do is on a single sheet of A3 paper, which is the equivalent of 11 by 17 in the US, you should be able to record what was the decision, what were the option, what were the criteria for making the decision, what, what were the options considered, and who made the decision, and, and why did they choose a particular option to meet those criteria. And by keeping it on one side of an 11 by 17, it forces people to be brief and yeah. therefore you know, not get into documentation overload. But later on, you'll, you will expose new information, which may well change that decision. Mm-hmm. And so when you go back to that A3 sheet, you can say, did we consider this new information? Does this new information materially change what we would have decided? And if it does, changing that decision may well be a good value for the project even though it will be disruptive and there'll be collateral damage of decisions that were made based on that previous larger decision. But then you can really make a, a decision with the owner, like, does this new information mean we should change what we started with? Mm-hmm. And if so, here's what the impact will be. And then you can manage to that. Right. I've actually heard of, uh, I think it was a, just a small residential firm, would make that the last sheet in their drawing set. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was actually part of their deliverable. <laughs> and and then it was never a question about where that information lived. It was always in that spot. And at any time, anybody on the project for any reason, you know, all the way through construction could always flip to that back sheet and say, why did we choose to do it this way? And there it was. Like right. that information was readily available. I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. And I think uh, experience would uh, would allow people to get the right balance. Of, you know, you don't want to do that for decisions which are too small because you would just have an overload of decision making documentation. Yeah. Um, so knowing what that cutoff is so that the important decisions that, and, and maybe the risky ones that people are going to challenge later get documented and included. And the ones which are unlikely to ever be 
you know, need to be reviewed uh, or are too small, just don't, and that just lives in people's heads. So that there's a good balance between, you know, having the benefits of the documentation, but not overloading the team with, with too much information. That makes a lot of sense, and I don't, I don't know exactly how you do that. What the mechanics are of of <laughs> deciding, no pun intended, like what what actually needs to be. I guess it's not really a pun, but uh, you know, like what what do you hang on to, or what do you just let pass through? And then I think even larger than that is how do you get that information to the larger staff of the company, for instance, right? And so that, it, like you said, so it doesn't just live in the heads of the people who are on the project, which is often a very small team, because it would seem like that information would be valuable enough, especially if you're taking that time to identify it, write it down. So you're basically codifying it so that it is useful, not only in the future for yourself, but for other people too. Right. And this gets into the knowledge management territory. Exactly. Yeah. Which there are people uh, who have thought about this much more than me, but I'm a bit of a knowledge management cynic mm-hmm. in that uh, design is a very human process and a very human profession. And people learn through experience. You know, there, there are already an enormous number of books on all aspects of design with people's experiences and opinions. But, you know, there's a limited ability of people to consume that information. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with a firm. It's like over time, over my career, there's been an enormous amount of effort put into making tacit information explicit and trying to create documentation of best practices in design, etc. But I think there's very limited ability for people to consume that information. Sure. And yeah. they tend to, to go to the people they know have the experience and just ask them. And I just don't think that that's a bad thing. We just have to embrace the fact that design is a very human profession and that there are experienced and very skilled people who have enormous value to the firms they work in and part of their role is to uh, is to mentor and assist and give that knowledge out on a one-to-one basis you know it's it's not efficient in a you know in a computer sense right but it's effective yeah, I mean, that's basically what the profession is built on, which right is like this apprenticeship kind of approach of working in right. an office, gaining that experience, doing it time and time again, and then repeat. Then the <laughs> the the student becomes the master, right? And then and then right. it, it repeats. Yeah. One of the collateral damages, I think, from the CAD era was that when Drawings were done by hand. They were on large tables, so they were very uh, visual in the studio. Right. And someone walking past would be tempted, you know, and this would be a good thing to to take someone to task on their drawing and ask them about it. And it was an opportunity for mentorship. And once once drawings went inside the computer and were only available through a small window usually zoomed in rather than a big picture view. Uh I think that opportunity for mentorship was damaged. And I don't think people realized or they didn't express it in that way. Like, oh, look, we brought in this new technology, which has great benefits, but it also has this huge problem. 
and that mentorship is now much harder than it used to be. I think that needs to be acknowledged. And uh, luckily, screens are bigger now, but it's still drafting. The act of drafting is, is, I think, is more personal now than it was, you know, thirty or forty years ago. Uh, and I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah, and to add fuel to that fire, now everybody's in their own location, right? So, so right. it's absolutely, it doesn't matter how big your monitor is, no one else is going to see it. Right. And so that's, a, I think that's something that firms should openly discuss is uh, how are we going to engage in mentorship? Because mentorship in the moment is hugely inefficient. I mean, you're paying your most experienced person to, and they may or may not have any insights for the person they're mentoring. Yeah. But without that, it's hard to see how the profession can grow over time. Yeah. I think uh, one of the concerns that I have and many other people have expressed it as well is when there is the work from home environment or a hybrid environment of some people in the office, some people at home, I mean, we can all pretty much guarantee that because there's children and they don't have a school to mm -hmm. go to, their parents will be at home. And therefore, you automatically have like a, a hybrid environment, potentially. Uh, let's just say offices mm -hmm. did open back up and schools haven't, right? You, you have this disparity amongst experiences where the people in the office have one experience. The people who are not in the office have a, you know, let's just call it second class citizen for for many reasons, and, and it has to do with collaboration. It has to do with overhearing what else is going on or overseeing what's going on, kind of the things that you were just talking about. And what's interesting to me is that every single firm out there is dealing with this highly possible future independently and not uh -huh. – there is no larger kind of collaborative effort going on here, profession-wide, industry-wide, however you want to – want to frame it to solve this problem so that it's similar. I mean, the solutions can be similar for everybody. Like that should all be shared information and shared knowledge. I don't, I, that's just kind of how I see it is why, why do we always kind of come at these problems as if they're our own problems only? Um, because mm -hmm. they're de most definitely not. And, and it doesn't mean that everybody needs to even try to solve them the same way, but, but it, let's say we were, we're not going to tell anybody else about it. And if we weren't, we're not going to tell anybody else about it either. And so we're not going to learn from others' mistakes as well as we could. And we're not going to go through those successes together. We're all just kind of on our own. And I think for the most part, that's how this profession has kind of squandered its potential for so long is that there's so much competitiveness and, and kind of get, to get back to where this conversation started when you are you were talking about how there's so much potential out there for design. There's so much potential for the type of work that we can do. And yet we're so competitive about it and insulated about it and isolated acting in isolation. It seems very odd to me um, at the same mm -hmm. time. Like, I don't know how you would organize a larger group think. So I, I don't have any answers there, but I think uh, like these problems are enormous and everybody's struggling with the same problems and trying to solve them independently it seems like there would be some benefit to coming together and having some agreement about a direction. Right. Yeah. And that's just to deal with this problem at hand, but the problems that you're speaking about with mentorship and the future of our profession and whose hands that lies in is a very scary proposition. Right. As to the future of, of architecture. I think it is. It's, it's always 
you know, it's not necessarily useful to be alarmist, but over there is a creeping over time towards technology kind of uh, becoming a barrier to discussions around design mm. and even to participation in design. Mm. So uh, the technical barrier between being a non-designer and being a designer in the past was very low in the sense that the pencil was the the means of expression and you know people became incredibly skilled at using pencils and pens and i wasn't one of them uh even though i i, I did practice in that era <laughs> uh, i did not have good penmanship but but the barrier was using the pen and then when when 2d cad came along the ability to use a computer and to work and to operate the computer software became a hurdle which a designer needed to cross. And many people became reasonably good at CAD. I, I would say only a few people became really, really good at it. Um, but most people could, you know, could get by in CAD. And so they transitioned from the drafting board to CAD. But BIM is an order of magnitude more difficult again. Whereas many, you know, most people, let's say, made the transition from drafting to being adequate CAD users. I think the ability to be an adequate BIM user is even a higher barrier. Mm -hmm. And to being an excellent BIM user is really, really high. Yeah. So I see that as a problem in the profession too. And the people who are really good at computers tend to dismiss it and just say people should learn, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but it's actually a, a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a problem for the profession, too, in that if only people who think a certain way can become excellent users of the software, then the profession is going to vastly disproportionately kind of reward those people and, and people who, who just don't think that way. There's a risk that they become less valued, I think. Mm. And I think the problem is, is, is technology's problem. Like technology is not diverse. And, you know, I think this is a good time to talk about, I mean, a good period of history to talk about diversity. And when software is complicated, it's going to impact the diversity of you know, who gets to participate. And I think that's something we need to think carefully about. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I'm sure you you've read that open letter to Autodesk. Uh, I've read part of it. I, think. I don't think I read the whole thing. To to me, one of the big kind of read between the lines takeaways that I had was people were basically complaining. Again, this this could be totally off base, but I think people were complaining that it's too complex. The software is too complex. We want it to be easier, and it's interesting, right? Because You've got apps on your phone that are super like it, technology has proven that you can make it so that it is mm -hmm. easy to use and powerful and delightful. Right. But I would mm -hmm. argue, as I have on previous episodes with with some other guests, is that like there are apps that we are forced to use by our own volition. Like we created this problem mm -hmm. or we, we willingly went along with it to use apps that we hate to use. And we now our jobs mm -hmm. depend on them. Um, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic that not a lot of people maybe 
take a step back to try to understand, but it's absolutely the case. And so then if you actually have apps that people hate to use that your job depends on, are you going to do a good job in them? Right. Because people take shortcuts all day long, every day using the software and short circuit their potential in it, right? Of what, right. It, what it possibly can do, but it, all in the name of like, just, just making it easier on themselves, right? I totally understand yeah. that. Uh, it, it is a very interesting kind of problem that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Because it is 22 years old. It's 20, this piece of software that we're talking about here, Revit is 22 yeah. years old and, and it's not, it's only getting more and more complex. It's a complex problem because the network effect in technology will centralize the population on a single tool um, or a single protocol. So, and the network effect is incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Autodesk may or may not have been, you know, explicitly leveraged the network effect, but they're the beneficiaries of it. And it's very, very hard to break that. So even when everybody agrees that, you know, a different tool is better, no one will be able to, or not, no one will be able to. It's the stickiness of the tool in the profession is is almost insurmountable. Right? Yeah. It's like the gravitation of a black hole. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and that's not any one person's or, or even one company's fault. It's just the right. way the world is. But the profession does need to think about that. And it would be possible for firms to uh, deliberately lower their efficiency in order to increase diversity of tools. Like I personally am an advocate for multiple design tools on a project, mm -hmm. like uh, say Grasshopper as well as Revit, as well as you know someone using Cinema 4D or something. Um, I think if people are open and if they take the time to understand other people's processes and what other people are trying to do, then it is less efficient. But it's possible to run multiple tools together and to do it without, you know, with, without much downside, I would say, given the upside. Well, especially if you're redefining the value of where an architect is valuable. Yeah. And, and the classic case is with, with Revit that a designer who's skilled at hand drawing or SketchUp or maybe Grasshopper could do 10 options and make a decision on which option was the best in the time it would take someone in Revit to do one option, right? Mm -hmm. So it's actually more efficient to break out, do the experimentation in, say, SketchUp, and then just put the answer back in Revit mm -hmm. than it would be to try to do all the experimentation in Revit. And from the Revit Zalot's point of view, uh, this is a terrible uh, mistake because we just became very inefficient because now we have to redo, in quotes, work in Revit. Right. But if you look at it in the broader picture, you just saved an enormous amount of time by breaking out of Revit, making the decision in the tool where that decision is best made, right. and then just putting the answer back in Revit. Where a completely different set of decisions has to be made. Right. Yeah. I don't want to sit 
say that Revit is not, in quotes, a design tool because there are people who think like Revit and they mm-hmm. design very effectively in Revit. Mm-hmm. But it is not everybody's design tool because not everybody thinks like Revit thinks. You know, some people think like SketchUp thinks or think like Grasshopper thinks. Right. Yeah, all, all fantastic comments. I, I think we should probably start to wrap things up here. Yeah. This has been, been fun. I have asked everybody on the show so far uh, to share a personal hack, something that you do to help yourself perform better. Uh, do you, is there anything you can share on that side of, of things? Yeah. For me, I, I try to optimize the times that I'm kind of in the zone or, you know, getting flow. And and for me, um, co- you know, the, the time of day to have coffee, the making sure I eat regularly, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, eating between meals to keep my energy levels up and then and sleeping as well. So, so it's kind of like a biocycle hack for me, I think, if I can keep a pretty good regimen of getting to sleep early, getting up, having my coffee at the same time, and then eating throughout the day, I can kind of maximize the amount of time that I'm uh, kind of in flow. I, I align very closely with that. I'm really interested in kind of what your schedule is therefore like. Like what, what have you learned about yourself that you now have really doubled down on? So I, I always used to uh, wonder why I would go to sleep during the day, particularly kind of in the early afternoon. Yeah. And I tried all kinds of things from exercise, to, you know, food. Turns out it's just how much sleep I get, uh-huh. you know, which is shouldn't really be surprising. Like it used to be eight hours when I was younger. Like if I didn't get eight hours sleep, I would go to sleep during the day. Uh-huh. Now it's more like seven probably, but you know, I try to get to bed by, you know, be, in bed, ready to go to sleep by 1030. If it's, if it's later than that, then, uh, the next day I'll start to get sleepy. So, yeah, I, I think it's funny that, like, I think usually the experimentation that happens around that is about fighting sleep rather than addressing it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the lack of, and I certainly went through all that. It's, it's so compelling to be like Margaret Thatcher, right? And then you need, you know, three hours sleep a night or something. And you think, wow, like imagine how much I could get done. But at least for me, I'm just not that person. Uh, You know, like eight hours would be excellent. And seven hours is kind of the... It's it's funny now because we've been talking about uh, data. (laughs) So I'm I'm looking, I'm scrolling right now through this app that I've been using for, it looks like I've been using it since 2013 on my iPhone to track my sleep. Uh And and it's not... 100% 100% accurate because it when more when there's more than one person in the room it's it's probably not not as accurate as it could be but i find it interesting to kind of look at those trends and use those trends to see what what the actual information is right so like when you go to bed when do you wake up how much what's your average time in bed and and i have to say it's been for a few years now like my average sleep time is is about seven and a half hours. And I think there's a lot of people out there who, you know, they say I can operate on four hours of sleep. I'm at my best when I get this much, that much. It's really interesting to look at that data and and see if your perception of yourself is matching up with the the reality. Um, Same thing for me with going to bed. Like 
like our kids for forever have gone to bed at 8 p.m. Um, and just now that now that they're kind of middle teenage years, we're, we're letting them stay up until nine. And and when I bring that up to people, they they're like their jaw drops. Your kids go to bed at eight o'clock. And it's like, well, yeah, we've we've built that in for years and years and yeah. years. And it's the kids ask, can I go to bed now? Um, yeah. And, and and because especially as a teenager, sleep is very important and weak. So I, I I love this this hack because it does hit close to home. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up um, because it is really important to take care of yourself. And uh, and yeah. and as an entrepreneur, you as you are an entrepreneur, um, how do you feel like that's kind of affected? Because there's definitely perceptions out there in the startup world of like work your ass off right forever. And and I also think that yeah. that's pervasive in the architecture world as well. So have you had any issues with that side of things? I think for for me and for our team, we are generally older, uh, kind of like coming at this as a second phase of, of career. Mm -hmm. And I think that does change the nature of the company quite a bit versus a company founded by and staffed by people who are in the first phase of their career. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. One is just uh, we're a lot Everyone in the company is just a lot more cynical about uh, the benefits of excessive work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, most of us, not me, but most others have kids. So uh, it's, it's really a family-ish company. Mm -hmm. You know, our schedules vary day to day by the needs of, you know, kids or other things. So we're definitely not the hardcore startup. But I think that makes Tonic a more considered product in that it's not something we we built with a limited amount of knowledge of the profession and a limited amount of kind of experimentation and discussion. It's mm -hmm. something that is built after 20 years by pretty much you know each of us in the profession, kind of looking at the profession, thinking about it, and then it's built relatively slowly. Or a product of its type as we, you know, put something out, talk to people about it, redo it again, redo it again, redo it again, um, you know, as, as we tune it yeah. to the way people are actually using it. So, so I think it does make a difference. You know? and, and on the other side of that, you've got these, not that there's any AU this year, but you've got those late night parties that you guys throw in your suite and it's just <laughs> torture to stay up that late. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is like by eleven o'clock. I am pretty much past it these days. Yes, well, probably was when I was younger too. I just don't admit it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So next question is: Who influences you, Reg? Is it who are you listening to? Who do you, who are you reading to? If you can make a, any recommendations, uh, I would love to hear what those are. Yeah, um, I'm a I'm a big podcast person. Uh, as, and I think podcasts are growing because of the convenience of consuming the information. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I like, I like the true crime podcasts. Um, <laughs> uh, there are some which are really amazing. Uh, there are some which are pretty average, but you know, there are some like the, the, you know, in the dark and I think serial like classic ones, which, which I really loved. I've listened to mm -hmm. one I'm listening to right now is called The End of the World with Josh Clark, which is not for the faint of heart, but 
I think for someone who's into science and uh, society, it would be pretty interesting. It's uh, it's pretty philosophical. It goes into not the end of the world as in, uh, you know, we might all, we might have a nuclear war or something. This is like the end of the world as in a billion years from now. Mm. Uh, and existential threats, which may not come to fruition for, you know, a thousand years or something, but things that are very interesting to think about now and, uh, and to consider in terms of humanity's place in the universe. So, uh, so I like those ones. Um, and I, I do read some books on architecture. I, you know, I still consider myself in the design field. So I do like to, to, to get through some of the architecture books. Well, final question. And, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time and being so generous. I, I would love it if you could tell people where they can find out more about you online or follow along with what your guys are doing, uh, either personally as Reg Prentice or as Tonic DM. I'm not a big social media person, but at Tonic, we are trying to be better. So Tonic does have an Instagram account, uh, just Tonic DM. In a Twitter account, I'm not sure you'll see too much showing up there, but I think our goal will be to maybe post less often, but much more interesting things. And uh, LinkedIn is probably the the best one. Uh, you know, it's tonicdm.com. People want to sign up, get on the email list or whatever, but just uh, following me or the company on LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. Um, I'm pretty old school i would say so uh sending me an email or uh just having a phone call is probably is fine i'm always surprised that people feel so reticent to email or just call so few people do it that i'm always happy to have the discussion because it's not like by any means like people are uh, over over abusing that or mm-hmm. abusing it it's like no i'd love to hear from people <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, personally, I, I like how I can just use your Calendly link and schedule a time yeah. with you, and you always show up, so it's fantastic. Yeah, actually, the Calendly link, which is Calendly slash Reg Prentice, is, it's actually, it's actually amazing. Like, yeah, yeah, very few people will just schedule an appointment, but it's actually a great way just to get in touch with me and, and maybe other people, too, is just to put some time on their calendar. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for hanging out today. And this conversation has been amazing. I, I really feel like I learned a lot of new things today, actually. And, and there was a lot of great insight shared. And so um, going back to that original lecture in 2017, where this all started, uh, this has been a fantastic journey. And I'm looking forward to the, the next part of it. It's going to be fun. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Appreciate it. Once again, a big thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Layer App, the flexible database for architects that makes it easy to view photos, files, and project data right in Revit. Remember, start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash trxl. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. 
I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.